Cause we got the alternative energy Unmicular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network They fought against WMC They fought against BHP The biggest mining company in the world And they fought against Cameco The biggest dedicated uranium mining company in the world and this small group of Aboriginal people have just quietly held their story, continued their struggle, and been successful. There is no uranium mine at Yaliri, and that is because people have stopped it. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show. On today's program, we'll bring you recordings from the Melbourne launch of Yaliri 50 Years of Resistance. On the 30th of May, the New International Bookshop volunteer, Asha, had a conversation with Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, and the evening was in honour of the release of the book produced by the Conservation Council of Western Australia, Yaliri 50 Years of Resistance, which tells the story of a community who fought off the proposed uranium mine in the Western Australian gold fields. To start off with, it would be great if you could introduce yourself and your entryway <coughs> into this campaign and maybe a little bit more broadly, a bit of a background to the uh, resistance at Yaliri. Thanks, Asha. Very happy to. Nice to be here, folks, and good to see you. Like Asha said, my name's Dave Sweeney. I've been involved in nuclear and resource and Indigenous politics in Australia for quite a long time now and work with the Australian Conservation Foundation, ACF. I lead ACF's nuclear-free work. I'm also involved in ICANN. I was one of the early, uh, uh, early days crew of ICANN um, and still active in that ICANN is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons um, and um, I'm still an active board member and active in that campaign as well. <clears throat> so like uh, for in many ways the, the nuclear issue has been like a really foundation issue um, that has brought together environmentalists, peace activists, Indigenous communities and, and Indigenous solidarity supporters and progressive um, labour, industrial labour, trade unions in particular. And those groups, among other communities of interest, have really struggled long and hard and worked long and hard to build Australia as a nuclear-free nation and have been really successful in that, actually. Oh, we're the country with the most uranium of any country on Earth. We've got a rip-and-ship culture and we don't rip-and-ship much uranium. And that is not because it's not there, it's because social licence is not there. It's been helped by a poor market for the product, but every project has been consistently contested. We don't have domestic nuclear power, and it's not, again, by accident, it's because people have opposed it. We don't have international high-level radioactive waste dumps because people have opposed it. We don't even have a national radioactive waste dump because people have opposed. So there has been decades of sustained and successful um, resistance to the atomic agenda in Australia. Now that there's been times when that's been like a, a big peak issue, like an 80s disarmament fight, 90s Jabaluka fight, 
um, 2000s uh, South Australian radioactive waste fight. There have been elevated points, but there has been a constant threat in progressive politics in Australia that radiation is unhelpful, unhealthy, unnecessary, unsafe, and people have worked really hard to keep uranium in the ground and, and move Australia away from further engagement <laughs> in the nuclear industry. That work obviously got a big slap in March of this year with the AUKUS announcement. And since then, not only do we have the prospect of increasing nuclear and militarisation and war fighting links, but we also have a renewed appetite amongst the pro-nuclear community and lobbies, the Mineral Council of Australia, um, a whole swag of uh, the coalition, you know, the Australian Sky News, the, the, the crew that you would expect have been greatly animated in their calls for increased nuclear activity. So, you know, more uranium mining, domestic nuclear power, host the world's high-level radioactive waste, ever-increasing military engagements. So this is a tough time. It's, it's not the end of times, but it is a tough time and it's a real disappointment because we had collectively, through creative, effective, sustained work, really capped and constrained and cornered the nuclear industry in Australia. And now it's sort of like, you know, um, the, the, the AUKUS uh, uh, arrangement is sort of like the old western where the cattle rustlers sneak up and just as the cattle are settling down for the night, shoot the gun and ride around and hoot and holler and cause a stampede. So they're trying to cause a stampede and what we're trying to do now is not only contest AUKUS but also ring fence that the momentum, the pro-nuclear momentum from AUKUS doesn't fuel a revised and um, aggressive uh, domestic response. And so I think now more than ever, like documenting the story of resistance and celebrating the success of resistance is really important. Because it's easy to just sit there and go, there's bipartisan political support, there's 350 billion plus dollars. What can you do in the face of that? Well, you can do plenty. And if you break any of these stories into smaller stories, you can see access points and halting points, and that's what we need to do. And if you look at Yuliri, Yuliri was 50 years of resistance. The story isn't over, but it's five decades of resistance against multiple governments with aggressive pro-nuclear agendas and against some of the biggest companies in the world. WMC, Western Mining Corporation with Avi Pavo and Hugh Morgan, you might not remember those names, but they were aggressive. They were aggressive. They played a key role in the 1980s in scuppering a Hawke government initiative or pledge to have national uniform land rights legislation. Fear-mongering then by key people in the mining industry and the Australian Mining Industry Council, Amy, because it was at the time, stopped that. So we don't have national <coughs> land rights. We instead have native title. Um, so, you know, they, they fought against WMC, they fought against BHP, the biggest mining company in the world, and they fought against Cameco, the biggest dedicated uranium mining company in the world. And this small group of Aboriginal people from this, you know, reasonably remote from us, from the eastern seaboard place, have just quietly held their story, continued their struggle, and been successful.
There is no uranium mine at Yaliri, and that is because people have stopped it. So that's a really powerful thing and a really important thing to document, both to celebrate this story of a specific win, but also to remind ourselves of our collective strength and also to sort of gird the loins a little bit for the next round of the struggle that lies ahead. Yeah, thank you for that background. And I think to go off sort of what the conversation about this being first and foremost a struggle of an Indigenous community, the title of the book obviously is 50 Years of Resistance, but resistance to land being taken and misused is by no means a short history uh, in this country. How, as people that are organising in an anti-nuclear space, particularly but in an organising space more generally, how do we make sure that we are not treading on the voices of the traditional owners of the land that we are organising for? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a question that all of us need to ask ourselves routinely and check in on to see that we, we are allies and in the most inclusive and supportive sense of that. The, the Australian Nuclear Free Movement, it's a, uh, you know, pretty, it's a pretty broad collection. There's lots of communities of interest within that overarching title. But one thing that I think is a really co uh, constant point, it has been um, an, a very clear analysis and awareness that the most impacted people from nuclear activities are First Nations people. It's their country that has been dug up, it's their country that's been bombed, it's their country that's been dumped on. And so the most affected people are First Nations and there has been a very strong and deep sense of shared connection, shared concern and the importance of working together. And I think if you look at some of the key struggles in say in the last 20 or 30 years of, of anti-nuclear politics or nuclear-free politics in Australia, if you look at Jabaluka, it was a black-green alliance. If you look at Muckety, which was a, a big campaign, ran for seven years to stop a radioactive waste dump in central Australia, again, primacy of that Aboriginal view. If you look what's happening now in South Australia, where there's a plan to dump at a place called Kimber, um, at the top of the Air Peninsula, bungalow traditional owners, are the traditional owners or native title holders of the uh, Air Peninsula are leading that resistance and that charge. So um, one of the things, and there's people in this room that have been key members and still involved in an, um, a grouping called ANFA, the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, and that is a black-green um, network and alliance of shared interest and concern over developments, nuclear developments on Aboriginal lands. So I think one of the things that informs us to come back to your point, Asha, is to, is to not speak for, but to amplify and elevate. Um, so I think in, in to, to, to distill this down, um, the, the Aboriginal voice and the Aboriginal concern, connection to country, gives nuclear-free campaigning a potency and an authenticity that cannot be questioned or manufactured. But equally, the environmental and civil society voice, because there's like trade unions like the MUA and the ETU have been and consistently are fantastic. There's other ones as well. There's faith groups that have been just solid and have given a real expression to an inclusive faith. There's solidarity groups and all sorts of other players. But 
civil, the broad non-Indigenous, non-First Nations civil society role has been, first of all, to listen and then to amplify and to project. Because this story, the Yaliri story, happened in WA goldfields, like meetings around campfires, walks on country, but a long way from decision makers and a long way from PowerPoints. And yet civil society can access those decision makers, those PowerPoints can get a story in a newspaper that reaches more people, that gets questions asked. So some of that stuff, we've, we've found that we, we have a shared concern. We understand the primacy of the First Nation voice because it's their country, their culture, they're the most directly affected. But we also very much understand that our fates are pretty much twinned and that we've got a really important, we being the non-Indigenous civil society world, we have a really important role to step up, not to step in front, but to step up and stand alongside, elevate, amplify and support those Indigenous concerns. And we've found that one of the things that I think has really embedded a lot of effective and respectful liaison with Aboriginal people is actually nothing in my experience is as good as meeting people face to face. Nothing's as good as respectfully going and sitting down with people and hearing their story in their place. And people here in this room have travelled lots of kilometres, lots of miles um, to witness, to support and to be there. And there's a very um, strong thread of of personal connection, respectful relationship that underpins a lot of the positioning of, of anti-nuclear civil society groups. And I think that's been really key because nothing really is. Aboriginal people, in, um, in my experience, really note people who turn up. They really note people who turn up and they often really respect people who sometimes just shut up and listen don't come in with all the answers, but come in with a couple of questions, open heart, clear head, um, and open ears. And then through a process of finding out how we feel about things, respect of what can be said, what can't be said, um, you know, the relative things of like the non-Indigenous political world, the Indigenous cultural world, trying to braid an approach together that ticks as many boxes as possible to get that story further and further. You're tuned to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcast across the continent thanks to the Community Radio Network. We're hearing a conversation between Asha from the New International Bookshop and Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, celebrating the book Yaliri, 50 Years of Resistance. As a struggle, because it is so linked into land, one of the things that is big with the Yaliri question is it is also so international. What is the impact of Yaliri on an international anti-nuclear scale and, and also how do we go about taking these very, very local and uh, struggles that are so embedded in the history of the land uh, against these international and multinational giants. Yeah, um, one, of the, one of the difficulties against such big companies is that they're sort of impervious, their range is global. Um, and so if you can 
move away from like a, a sort of philosophical or a, or a um, big picture capital letter worldview and bring home specific impacts. And I think, you know, we see that a lot in campaigning. People like to personalise, people make connections. So one of the things that we try and do is, is give a face and a voice to those who are being impacted by decisions made by decision makers far away. And they don't have to be decision makers like in Canada or London, like some of these mining companies, they can be decision makers in Canberra, which is equally far away and is equally removed from the, you know, the lived First Nation Australian reality. Um, <clears throat> so I think personalising things, making things sort of real, using precise but clear and accessible language is really important. Um, and I think also putting these things, there's a sense um, in um, Australia that these things are sort of, um, they're just natural. We find an ore body, we dig it up, you know, um, that these are just, that's the way the world is. I think one of the things that the anti-nuclear movement does very well, has done for a long time, continues to, is it puts these things as choices. Like how, what energy we want is a choice. It's not inevitable that we'll use coal. It's not inevitable that we'll use nuclear. These are choices. You know, whether we dig a thing up or not is a choice. And the anti-nuclear movement often uses the phrase talking about uranium as that it's the asbestos of the 21st century. And like asbestos was a mining industry in Australia, big industry, employed a lot of people. The product worked. The product as a, as a temperature control, as an industrial product, it, it worked. But it's human cost, it's environmental cost, it's breathe it in and later you die cost was too high. And like civil society groups, but particularly industrial labour, campaigned hard against it and alternatives were found. And we don't mine uranium. Oh, sorry, that's I'm ahead of myself. No, I'll be able to say that phrase soon. Touch wood. But touch wood. But we don't mine asbestos anymore in Australia. But it's not because A it doesn't work. It's not because there's not a market or a demand, there is, and it's not because we haven't got it, we've got plenty. The difference is we made a social licence decision that there was a cleaner, better, less impactful way to achieve a comparable industrial result, and we took that path. And that's what we're saying about uranium, that's what we're saying about nuclear energy, that's what we're saying about radioactive waste. These are not inevitable, they're conscious choices, we need to choose well. And then we need to put in checks and balances. Um, so I think one of the things is, is to uh, make a thing personal. One of the things is, is to show that there are options. Um, because if there, is no, if there are no other options, like if a community sees its only option is to accept radioactive waste or to agree to a mine as a way to get things that the rest of us may be in urban centres take as citizenship entitlements, education, healthcare, other things, we need to provide other alternatives. So part of our um, role is to keep uranium in the ground but put some, inject some hope into the air and some alternatives into the air. What? What needs to be done to keep up the hope in the air in this, particularly in the Yuliri mm. struggle at the minute? Because there is currently, the time has lapsed for Kamikota Mine, and so far there hasn't been an appeal, and the appeal has been shot down. What needs to be done to keep
keep up the struggle in this place and not fall into complacency with mm. the anti-uranium uh, mines in your Ulyri. Yeah, so it's you're, you're spot on. Um, this uh, campaign in, at Ulyri is in a funny stage now, sort of in a status <laughs> stage, like it's... Um, uh, it was all systems go, you know, there was the Barnett government elected in, I think it was 2008, and they were like, we're going to open WA up to uranium mining, and that was one of their key policy frames. And there were companies on the go, including Cameco, the big Canadian company that um, operate or owned um, Ulyri. And it was a very, there was a lot of enthusiasm, there was a lot of um, media chatter about it. Um, and it was contested all the way, including th not just like through, there was protest, there was walks and community awareness raising, there were site visits, there was legal action, a WA Supreme Court action. Um, there was all sorts of procedural interventions and tracking assessments and approvals and tracking the, the federal environmental approval and contesting that which was an exercise in extraordinarily politicised circumstances. The state and the federal environmental approvals for the Ulyri projects were a disgrace. They were a disgrace. The state minister approved it shortly before the Barnett government lost office and approved it despite the very rare and very clear explicit advice of the West Australian Environmental Protection Agency that the project not go ahead. And then on a federal level, Melissa Price, who was then the Environment Minister, approved it, again in highly politicised and secretive uh, circumstances, before a federal election, after having been subject to some pretty... And we've got the FOI trail, significant pressure internally, including predominantly from um, uh, Senator Matt Canavan, who at that time was the Resource Minister. So the company was in touch with Matt Canavan, who was in touch with Minister Price, saying, get this one through. Push it through, sign it off before the election because we don't want to run the risk that we uh, don't get back and this mine doesn't get up. So at every corner, this is a project, this project, if it, if it was to go ahead, would directly lead to species extinction of stygofauna, little subterranean critters. They live in aquifers and they're highly specific, they're specific endemic just to that area at Ulyri and they would be gone. Now some people go, well so what, these little shrimpy creatures, little sea monkeys don't exist anymore, 10, 12, 15 species gone. Well the so what is that those are species that one there's, there is, species have a right to exist, not just ones that are two legs and, and you know, have mm. mobile phones. All species have a right to exist. And the second thing is, you never know. Like, what sort of hubris is it to think that we understand every connection in the world and the absence of one thing that we don't really know won't matter? So even if you're on enlightened self-interest, maybe, maybe those critters have a role to play in something. But even if you're not, those critters have a role to play. And if you start wiping the slate, that species can go, not just one or two, but the entire species gone, never to come back. It's a very, very dangerous precedent, and that's what we do far too often. So it's stalled now. They've been able to stall it. There's a WA Labor government that got in, again, because of people power, with uh, uh, opposition, 
to uranium mining. Their policy position was opposed to uranium mining. There were four projects that got through the gate for varying degrees of approval before Labor took power in the West, and they said, we're not going to roll back those four. They were scared of risk of compensation claims and other challenges. They said, well, those four are through the gate, but there won't be any more. Now, in the intervening period, three of the four, as Ash has said, have failed to reach a criteria called substantial commencement. So when you get a mine, the, the, the way it works is when you get a mining lease or a mining project approved, you have to do some work on it because the industry and government want the stuff to be developed. They don't want just people to, to get a, a mining lease and then, as they say, warehouse it, just sort of sit on it and hold it. They actually want it to be developed. So in order to do that, they give you five years to re realise substantial commencement. And that means you've spent enough money, done enough work that you're on the road, and that means that your approvals all flow. But if you haven't reached your substantial commencement threshold, if you haven't spent enough and done enough, then after five years, your approval to mine lapses. Now what doesn't lapse is your right to hold the mining lease. So the mining company's in this funny space where it's got the lease and the project, but hasn't got approval to do any work on the project because that's lapsed. So there's some in politics who say, well, there you go, problem solved, it's not happening. Yeah, but that's like a today answer. And if there's one thing we've learnt from First Nation people in this country and everywhere, is mob think long. Like they think far beyond tomorrow. You know, seven generations back, seven generations forward, what will the old people think, what will the young people inherit? Um, and so Mob at Yaliri are thinking long, and they're like, okay, they're not digging now, but what happens if another government gets in? You know, because it will, it won't be Labor forever. What happens if there's a massive spike, because people go, oh, well, Russia's not, can't get uranium from Russia anymore, we better get it from Australia, let's spend top dollar on Australian uranium. Because there's all that chatter around as well. So what we're pushing for now is like the permanent protection of this site. The WA Labor take a step, like it's not like it's a good step to get something right by stopping getting it wrong. That's a good first step. And they've said that with every other uranium deposit. We're not going to approve it. Good first step. But these ones that are through the door, they need to be pulled back. And now's the time to do that. Like no one's digging there, no one's working there, there are no jobs there. The community don't want this project to go ahead and have fought long and strong against it. So now's the time. And, you know, um, potentially, as we see this week, politics changes, mm. things change. And so um, we will be elevating a call to whoever is the next West Australian Premier mm. to, you know, put their stamp on, on um, you know, their, their <coughs> legacy mm. and, and take the step that makes WA like solidly uranium mining free. Mm. How much of the McGowan resignation is throwing into jeopardy what's been done at Ulleri and how much of it is opening up a new, a new front for really uh, shoring up the, the integrity of this site? Yeah, look, it's not, it's not opening up, it's not threatening or undermining the work that's been done to stop Ulleri, the resignation of, of Mark McGowan, because they don't have their approvals, et cetera, et cetera. And it does perhaps offer, you know, glass half full, it does perhaps offer an opportunity for a new 
Premier coming in to say, actually, that's a bit of a policy that's like roofing iron, flapping in the breeze. I'm going to nail that one down. I'm going to shut that door. This is the time to do it. That's the case that we'll make. But, you know, the long and short of this, and the thing I think that I keep coming back to, getting longer in the tooth, greater in the hair, and reflecting on activism, is that, no, and it, no news to anyone here, that the real deep power for social change doesn't come from politicians. The real deep power comes from people, and it particularly comes from First Nations people, because there is a sense there of, um, of uh, that. And I think, you know, on the back of this book, there's a quote from Shirley Wombion, and, um, and she says, uh, mining uranium... So this is an older Aboriginal woman. Mining uranium at Yaliri, we're going to stop it. That's the story for the Seven Sisters. The old people told me that story, and I don't want that mine to go ahead. And in that is, like, the recognition of cultural practice, cultural importance. But there's a beautiful certainty there, like... This was said by an old Aboriginal woman in the Goldfields region of WA and when it was said, the company that was proposing this was the world's biggest mining company. And her assessment wasn't like, oh, well, there's not much we can do there. Her assessment was, we're going to stop it. So that certainty of, of, of knowing that you're grounded in place, that you're supported by culture, that you're speaking with truth, is, is really powerful. And all the activities which are captured in this book, from walks to talks to lock-ons to legal cases, all of these activities, none of them individually is enough. All of them collectively have stopped this mine from going ahead. And now we need to actually weld the door shut. That brings us to the end of today's Radioactive show. We've been hearing from Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation in conversation with New International Bookshop volunteer Asha about the book Yaliri, 50 Years of Resistance. If you're in Melbourne, you can get down to the bookshop to pick up a copy. And the New International Bookshop is downstairs in the Trades Hall building, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. And you can also order the book online by going to ccwa.org.au forward slash Yaliri. The Radioactive Show is produced with the support of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne and shared with community radio stations across the continent thanks to the Community Radio Network. Thanks so much for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are a part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon. We need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations really matter. <laughs>